0: Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall podcast. We are just inside two weeks from the 2022 midterm election. Uh, as I think we, you know, and and we've discussed sort of in the last two or three weeks, there seems to have been a kind of a uh, some level of resurgent uh, Republican tide. There's maybe been the sort of the the, the slightest maybe, you know, a weakening of that in the last few days. But we're all in the sort of the, you know, the fog of campaign season. We don't really, really know. We're going to know in a couple of weeks or, you know, who knows? Maybe uh, we'll have a midterm insurrection. I hadn't thought about that. Think of it as like a presidential only kind of thing. But, you know, who knows? But anyway, we're going to uh, we are going to get into uh, a lot of different um a lot of different parts of this. There was a big uh, debate last night in uh, Pennsylvania. Was it in Philly? Or maybe it was in Pittsburgh? I can't remember. Uh, in any case, uh, well, you know, uh, Mehmet Oz, I mean, might have been in Trenton, right? If he wants the hometown crowd. Anyway, we're going to get into that because, you know, that was, um, you know, there's a lot of debates going on right now. Uh, we're in that kind of, you know, uh, final period. But as, as we know, this debate had um, a lot of extra drama to it, not only because this race has closed a lot. Uh, You know, Oz was, I'm sorry, uh, John Fetterman was significantly ahead of Mehmet Oz. And then, you know, now it is basically a tie race, you know, depending on how you want to look at the polls, maybe uh, Fetterman still has like a very, very slim advantage. But as we know, uh, Fetterman had a stroke, middle of the year. I'm trying to remember exactly when that was, you know, mid-year, something like that. I think it was four or five months ago. And he still clearly has a significant level of impairment. What we can draw both from uh, his own doctors, but I think more importantly, from outside uh, uh, doctors, the kind of impairment that he has is not cognitive. It's not that he doesn't understand things or can't, you know, Inside his head, uh, to the best of our medical knowledge, he's just like, you know, you, you and I. But when you have a stroke, you sometimes have problems processing uh, language. You know, you hear stuff and, and it, you know, we, 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 uh, it's one of these things that one only kind of fully starts to understand when things go wrong you know, hopefully not for ourselves, individually or our family members. But, you know, I think we, we generally think of, you know, Kate says some words, they go into my ear, and since I understand English, cool, I understand what Kate's saying. And I, I speak back, and my words, I mean, in this case, through some electronic mumbo jumbo, go into her ears, whatever. But obviously, it's a little more complicated than that. Right, you have parts of your brain. You have parts of your brain that uh, receive audio signals. Right, Uh, that we know something is loud, something is quiet. Uh, In in music, we have different like you know tonal qualities. But then there's another part of our brain that takes language sound and processes that into something we can understand. And that is not identical to, you know, the fact that I am an English speaker, so I probably, I, mean, I don't know how many note words I know, 100,000 words, maybe a few hundred thousand words um, that I've uh, memorized. But they, again, that's different from processing speech. And, you know, when you have a stroke, when you have... Um, brain damage from a stroke, which is what happens, you know, in many cases, you can recover, your brain can kind of rewire. But Fetterman is, is, is dealing with that. And it's real. Um, and there's been, you know, not surprisingly, the Fetterman campaign really did, you know, did not want to do a lot of debating. Mehmet Oz's campaign was like, you know, let's do 57 debates. And let's do it uh, standing on one foot and patting your head and rubbing your tummy at the same time. Right, I mean, as we, as I think we talked about last week, you know, Oz was really far behind. um, Didn't really have a lot of. uh, He's from out of state. Didn't really have a lot of policy traction. Uh, They've, they've, they've done a lot of crime, but basically, they made their 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 campaign about Fetterman's stroke, right? And it's been fairly successful, I think. Uh, And last night, um, I think that. It was sort of universally agreed that you know you could tell Fetterman is still not 100, percent you know, very clearly. And the question is sort of like, is that going to matter? Right? I mean, I think uh, I think if you want to be um, honest, you know, it's not great, you know, from from an electoral standpoint. Um, but uh, you know, voters are unpredictable. Um, there, my impression, and I want to say that I did not watch the debate live, kind of on purpose, kind of didn't, kind of didn't want to, um, but when I did see it, I would say Mehmet Oz... If you looked at his expressions, whenever Fetterman was sort of struggling with a word or struggling with some hearing, like Osler, ah, like, <laughs> I mean, he was like, he seems sort of like some, like, kind of giddy, and certainly, obviously, I come to this whole thing with 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 pretty clear uh, sympathies. Um, but you see someone acting like that, and you're like, what an asshole! Like, what an what an asshole! And and especially, kind of like, people are watching you, man. Like don't you know that makes you seem like an asshole um so who knows and so and another thing came up in that debate um and as you know as often as the case um in debates it is it's seldom things that happen in debates certain things happen in debates and then they spur days of conversation, and those things can be you know can be pretty damaging and oz you know there's this. Over the 50 years that abortion has been a public and above the table issue in politics. And I say it that way because it's not like abortion wasn't an issue before then, but a kind of a public issue that people explicitly talk about. Uh, supporters of abortion rights have, you know, come up with all these different ways of phrasing support for what they often have rightly or wrongly feared people are uncomfortable with right they're not kind of saying like yeah you just got to get in there and have an abortion if you're not feeling you know if it's not your kind of thing to have you know you you, all these kind of uh, uh ways to frame abortion in ways that abortion rights supporters think are have the greatest possible appeal you know the very basic one is it 's a woman 's choice you know that 's kind of been the dominant one for the last half century choice another one you hear a lot is uh, when people say that is between the woman and her doctor, kind of another way of saying the same thing, but sort of also signaling this is a medical thing you know when you, when you when you need to decide whether you need a medical procedure or certain kind of treatment, you talk to your doctor because at least in the in the um mythology of American healthcare, you know, you have a kind of an intimate relation, not an intimate in that sense, but you know, an intimate relationship with your doctor. You tell them secrets, right? You're, you kind of, you, you, you bear all literally and figuratively and you discuss the most important issues. So, um, last night in a discussion of abortion, Oz has this moment where he says, you know, this issue should, should be between the woman, the woman's doctor and local political leaders. And you're like, wait a second. What, wait, what local political leaders? I mean, obviously, uh, anti-abortion people think it should be illegal. Right. So it, but like, you know, local political leaders and, and, um, it's sort of a weird image, I mean, to put it mildly, kind of a weird imagery, because again, in that, in that stylized, um, in the visual imagery of it's between a woman and her doctor, you know, it's a private decision. You're in the, you know, in your doctor's office, whatever, right? And when you say kind of like, and local political leaders like, is the mayor there? The mayor's there in the exam room, the city council? The sheriff? Like, who are we talking about here? The local political leaders. It's a jarring thing. Now, if you go back, you know, it kind of shows when you take when you take one well-worn political metaphor, you know, it's between a woman and her doctor. And then you try to kind of. I don't know, like like uh, retool it with like populist localism, local political leaders. It kind of gets weird. And that was kind of what happened to you. If you you look at his exact quote, he says something like, you know, it should be up to, you know, the woman, her doctor, local political leaders getting together and figuring it out. You know, so (laughs) it it ends up being this kind of weird, I don't want to say mixed metaphor. um, But it's just, you know, people don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to speak for women. But like, you know... Talk to your doctor. I don't think people want to talk to the mayor when you're deciding whether to terminate a pregnancy. Am I wrong on you know, I don't think so. So Democrats are trying to kind of grab onto this as the thing that will, you know, have life after this debate. They obviously are, I think, rightly uncertain about the impact of, of Fetterman's uh performance. And uh so we're gonna see. We're gonna see how it plays out um you know to to me i just think uh, i think what oz said has a has a lot of is something that democrats should really grab hold of because i do think it it brings out in this jarring way it's just a weird statement so you know you repeat it and i was like what you know it kind of it kind of grabs people but it also brings us back to the basic point that that a lot of people like maybe this isn't up to the local political leaders maybe it's just any woman's decision about what she wants to do with her body and you know obviously you can you you bring in other people you trust your doctor your uh you know whoever not not local political leaders especially since local political leaders, it's sort of like, you know, what's, what's the you know the, the mayor on the Simpsons? Local political leaders are kind of like especially cheesy. I mean, no offense to all you local political leaders, but like, you don't want to ask local political leaders or leave it up to local political leaders whether you're allowed to terminate your pregnancy. Uh, here's me telling you what you do or don't want to do about your terminating your pregnancy. So, well, we're going to bring in my co host pretty quickly since so I'm not the only person, uh, talking here. Anyway, uh, let really me quick, quick reminder that the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off uh, your next order at grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code TPM. So, all right, K- co host Kate Riga, uh, what let's, well, let's start with, um, local political leaders. What's your what's your read on that?
1: It's funny because I think, you know, like you kind of opened it, that the Oz campaign wanted seven debates. And there is, I mean, even in, a, in the pre-Fetterman stroke <laughs> world, that makes sense. This is a guy who made his living on TV. He obviously knows how to have stage presence and fluency in front of an audience and cameras and, you know, all of that. Fetterman, even pre-stroke, was never, you know, an orator. That like wasn't his skill set. And that kind of, I think, bened- benefited him for a while because it played in with this idea of, you know, he's authentic, he's not a traditional politician, ergo, he's not polished, shorts, hoodie, the whole package. So... In this way, this debate should have nothing but upside for Oz. And that could even be read in the way that the Fetterman campaign was kind of softening the ground beforehand. You know, they were sending out memos to reporters and press releases kind of saying, you know, now John might miss some words or or mush some together or, you know, public speaking has never been John's strong suit kind of thing. And then they get up on the stage and Fetterman is clearly kind of struggling. And I think we've seen, even at recent events, him be more fluent than he was last night, which makes sense, right? I mean, he's trying to give answers in like a 30 second time frame and working with this closed captioning stuff and it's high pressure and all the rest, but it should have just been a really a perfect evening for Oz. And yet then he just kind of gift wraps this quote that the Fetterman campaign, I think even in the hours after the debate released a, a press release saying that they're going to cut an ad you know, out of the statement. Um, They've got their soundbite, right? Whenever we go back and forth about these debates and their importance, it's always about just kind of like what is going to be the, the resonating moment that was kind of snappy, that's ad friendly, that's internet friendly. And Oz just handed it out. I mean, and in some ways, this is why people don't like doing unfriendly And unfriendly media or unfriendly questioning because he is in a very difficult position, which is that on his TV show, he expressed kind of a more traditionally supportive of abortion rights view. He then tried to pivot by saying, you know, all abortion is murder. And neither of those, you know, are really going to fit who he's trying to be in this Pennsylvania race. So he has to try to walk a tightrope, that's really difficult because you've got people demanding absolutes. And so, you know, in this way, I think he got the question multiple times of if he would support the 15-week ban. You know, he definitely tried to dance around these questions. And that's the one he finally kind of had to answer and just said almost as wrong of a thing as he possibly could have said in that situation. And, you know, other Kind of like the Ron Johnsons a bit. He he's been a little more swingy on it, but someone in his position too has tried to do the whole "ah, don't worry about it." Like uh, this is left to the state, you know. Just t- doing that weird thing where they're like, "I'm impotent," you know. It doesn't. Eh, don't listen to me, um, kind of thing. But here, it's like oh, it's just delivered this thing of like. Like you say, it's distinctive because the woman and her doctor thing is such a cliche. So in addition to that, grouping just immediately kind of strikes your ear. And then I think he was going for this idea of like local politicians, people know and trust them. And that just feels like such an outdated model of like kind of, you know, when you knew your your councilman or whatever, and you saw him around. And now, I mean, is there any kind of character that encompasses the extremism of the Republican Party right now more than a local politician.
0: Yeah, it's... it. I think you hit it on the head that, again, woman and her doctor is such a well-worn sort of metaphoric image that, I mean, you almost kind of... There have been many ads, literally, a woman... In a doctor's office, you know, in in an examination, and you know, examination room where you're, where you're, you know, kind of sitting where they're actually going to, you know, be a doctor and having a hard conversation. That kind of that thing, and the way he put it, just kind of makes it you think like the mayor's going to be there too. Right? What does the mayor think? What does the city councilman think? You know, which is just a little, a little jarring. And again, I don't know. Um, it is, I don't know what the psychology is, but I, you know, I think part of it is maybe that, um, you know, people who ascend in national politics are pretty packaged, right? They tend to be relatively good-looking people. Um, they're packaged, right? And local is, is not as packaged, and it's just you know kind of and and as you say kind of uh, some of that is not just visuals some of them are pretty insane, mm-hmm. right? So it just it just it just does seem uh, it's not a good um, image and it does bring you back to the basic point: is this should this be up to uh, politicians who are uh, you know mostly male, right? And kind of probably even more so in in certainly I would think even more so in the kind of regions where this is probably going to be an issue.
1: Right. Right? Yeah. So it's just, the thing was like, we've heard, I think we've heard a lot of conversation after this debate about what was the Fetterman campaign thinking by kind of agreeing to do any debates at all. Because as we talked about last episode, debating is no longer a prerequisite to candidacy. But I think, you know, I think it's more than that. They were just kind of like, well, we've got to do it. So we're going to do it, even though, anyone who kind of had to put any money on the line would probably guess that Fetterman wouldn't do that well. Even if he had done better than he did last night, it's no secret that his, you know, his speech patterns are affected. And it doesn't take kind of a a medical uh, genius to kind of guess that that, this format would be particularly bad for those issues. But And I've been thinking about that too, because that was kind of my knee-jerk reaction last night when I was just like, Jesus Christ, like what a terrible way to kind of go into these last two weeks. But I think here I have two thoughts. One is that I think they just must have felt like if they refused to debate that it would have the kind of they're hiding his health. You know, how sick is he? Like, does he have cognitive impairment stuff? They just think that that the risk of having all of that churned up outweighed the risk that he would be a little stuttery and a little lost, right. but at least would be standing there and would be able to deliver the message like he did to open the debate of, look, like I'm a work in progress, kind of like you need to bear with me. I'm still figuring out my speech, but, you know, I, I got knocked down. I'm back up again. Any of you that have health problems understand. And I think also hoping that people reward him for, I think, the courage that it takes to get up on a stage like that when you know you're not speaking very well.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I really don't know how that will play. And I do think, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh my God, terrible decision to have a debate. I do think, um, you know, it, it is easy to say that now, no question about it. Um, but you know, for months you've, and certainly, you know, the big, the big newspapers, like, you know, he's not, they're not being transparent enough. He needs to show himself. He needs to debate. I think they, they, You know, I think they clearly thought that it was just untenable Mm -hmm. for him not to debate. And I, I I don't know, I, 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 I I at least think that people who, who say they made a terrible mistake are not quite reckoning with the amount of pressure they were under to allow one debate. I mean, who knows? And, and, and again, it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, you don't know how people will react. And again, I, I did, I did quite apart from the abortion comment. I do feel like I, I don't know. Oz has did seem like he was kind of snickering when totally. when 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 Fetterman was was struggling, and that's a that's a that's a bad look. I don't think that's people don't like that.
1: And I mean, going into this, right? It's like both men had two goals. Oz would be to raise his own likability because so far any kind of progress he's made in the polls has been with people who are getting nervous about Fetterman, not people who are suddenly like, God, that Oz, he's the best, you know? So he was trying to like, he, obviously he wanted Fetterman to look bad, which I would say he probably he succeeded. Yeah, And then he also wanted to have some positives in his column. There again, I think it's pretty universal that he did not succeed. I think he came across, like you said, kind of snide. Um, you know, he made that one comment about like, oh, maybe I wasn't speaking clear enough. Like just kind Yeah of no dick, that that you know? was
0: like that was the one that really like made me think, all right, I'm not just like kind of imagining this. He's really I mean that's just nasty. Um, and, and that nasty doesn't even quite capture it. That is uh, just sort of vicious and, yeah. and um, you know, denigrating someone for their physical incapacity.
1: Right. And which is in kind of in keeping with how his campaign has handled it. If you remember that one dust up where like his press secretary or spokesperson in some capacity made some. Some like jibe about, well, if, if Fetterman had ever eaten a vegetable in his life, he wouldn't have gotten a stroke. And like Oz ultimately had to be like, yeah, it wasn't me. You know, I just I employ vipers. But hey, that's, that's not me. So but right. anyway, that was his task to do tonight. And I think by all accounts, he had the easier hill to climb. And there, you just can't say that he made himself look good. You know, he maybe Fetterman looked bad. That's I think that's true. But I don't know that he looked good in comparison. And then you had Fetterman, whose goal was obviously they would hope to kind of come across as as healed and normal as possible. Don't think that really succeeded. But then the other half of it would be to make Oz fuck up, you know, for Oz to say something uh, that seems extreme and soundbitey and that either kind of plays into this idea of what the Fetterman campaign has been, you know, dressing him as the whole time, which is this like carpetbagger who's inauthentic, who has made his money on the backs of kind of duping people who are in medical need, putting on this like ill-fitting MAGA suit. And that is what they want us to be. And then he comes out on the stage and says something that rubs people the wrong way about his abortion stance. So in that way, I do think there a lot of the conversation has been about Fetterman. And in some ways, this might be a situation that's painted by how people are talking about it afterwards. But I, I still don't see it as just like kind of a pure slam dunk for Oz, which by all accounts, it probably should have been.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, you know, um, we will see. We will see. Uh, I And I, I do think even beyond, you know, the thing about the abortion comment, because frankly, I think this should be something beyond just Pennsylvania. I think this, this is like Democrats' closing argument. And I think the reason it is, it is a good closing argument is that, you know, there are some uh, anti-abortion politicians who in, 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 in one of these questions will just say, I think abortion is wrong, period. I think it is taking a life. I oppose it. And if you support abortion rights, you obviously disagree with that and it can upset you but what can you say you know what can you say like well okay i mean that's what you think like it's it's just a clear position and i think the thing here what gives this some sort of teeth is it's 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 not so much it's offensive but it's weird mm-hmm. like the local politi- local political leaders i i need to i you know they 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 get a say and what you know they're gonna come and I, I talk to them about my abortion or what it's kind of it's sort of creepy, right? Yeah. Which gives it that extra sort of you know uh, uh thing to it. So you know we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. but I
1: mean the, th- the other thing about this that is kind of similar to you know Carrie Lake in in Arizona is just a byproduct of this trend of Trump specifically kind of anointing people he's seen on TV to run, obviously not always perfect. He sometimes picks people who are too weird. But the flip side of that is that you will tend to have telegenic people and that can be a problem. I mean, and it's been, I think, somewhat less of a problem as debates are starting to go by the wayside. But, you know, that. That is something that's kind of been at the front of my mind because it's just Carrie Lake in particular is just really good whenever she's talking to reporters or on TV and kind of masking these not-so-extremist positions in TV speak. You know, not saying that much, but saying enough and saying things that are kind of widely inoffensive. And that is a dangerous skill for these like right-wing people to have.
0: Yeah, there there was one interview I saw with her and it was maybe like, like Jake Tapper or Chuck Todd some, you know, sort of nationally known, uh, uh, T, you know, uh TV host reporter, et cetera. And, uh, you know, she said something about, oh, you know, all the, all the votes in Phoenix were, you know, insecure or tampered with or something like that. And the person said, oh, okay, wait a second. Like that is not, tr- you know, that is not true. And she can't n- normally, um, Normally, a, someone in her position will say like, well, who says? Or so you say, blah, 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 blah. And she came back with this, oh, in fact, the department of such and such said it is true. Like she responded as you would respond if no, the relevant authorities agree with me. What are you, what are you, what are you talking about? Where did you, where, you know, and, and it, was, it, was, it was striking to me because when I heard it, um, it, you, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to keep track of all the ins and outs of the controversies in every city, in every red and purple state. Right. And when she said it, I was like, wait, wait, did he get his facts wrong? You know, did she, she seemed so, you know, so sure. And I think it's what you said is that she's been on TV. She's been a news reporter, right? She's been a, or a, you know, I don't know if she's a reporter or an anchor, but she just kind of knows how you say things. Right.
1: Yeah, I think this transitions well into the other into another kind of candidate focus topic I want to talk about, which is uh, you, Josh, wrote a recent post kind of about a point we've been returning to, which is that Tim Ryan seems to be running about as good a campaign as a Democrat, you know, not named Sherrod Brown can run in Ohio. And that it's still, I mean, jump ball per the polling, that would lead us to kind of give the edge to J.D. Vance just because of how red Ohio has become so quickly. But, you know, it's an interesting point that wh- where other races have kind of oh pretty much across the board, you know, done, th- done what Fetterman's has done, which is that Democrats were doing quite well into the summer and then tight, 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 tight. And now that we're two weeks ahead, you know, it's enough to just make you want to die. But in Ohio, it's, it's remained pretty stable,
0: yeah, it's it's striking. I'm, I actually pulled up the most recent polls. There is one not terribly well-known poll. Uh, uh, it's called Signal, C-Y-G-N-A-L. They have they had a they've had a couple polls over the last couple of weeks that have Vance four, uh four points ahead. But of the polls that I am familiar with, over the last uh, week and a half, there's been a Marist poll, a Siena poll, and a Suffolk poll. These are each very well-known, very respected national polls. Um, I would say uh, Marist and Siena. And Siena is both very respected and tends to lean in a, uh, not in the sense that Siena is like a Republican organization, I just purely in the sense that In the last couple cycles, their results have been better at picking up those Republican trends that often, to many of our chagrin, only show up on election night. In any case, so those three polls, one has uh, Suffolk had uh, about a week and a half ago, had Vance up by two, Siena had it tied, and Marist had um, up by one each Vance in every case but that's like a tie race and it has not moved he has not been able Vance has not been able to open up anything and and you know on on um on Tim Ryan and if you think about the other states you know what states are we looking at we're looking at Arizona we're looking at Georgia we're looking at Wisconsin you know sort of secondarily we're looking at maybe uh you know North Carolina Ohio is by far the most conservative of all these states no question. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I guess you can kind of say, you know, Vance is not a likable guy, but a lot of Republican Senate candidates aren't likable guys. It's just Ryan has just run an incredible campaign. And, and again, I, you know, to my regret, when I look at this, um, you know, not through the eye of hope. I look at this and see that you've got you know five to ten percent of the electorate undecided, and in a Republican state, you've got to figure that that the sort of the partisan muscle memory kicks in, and Vance gets more of those uh, more of those votes, and he and he wins. I think that is the most likely scenario, but it's certainly not the only scenario by any means. And and I think all of this to some extent for good reason we all kind of see through the 2016 2020 prism of we're kind of waiting for these polls to have underestimated republican strength um but basically this is a this is a tie race and i guess um you know the other way of looking at that is that it's a republican state and 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 jd vance has not been able to not just not close the sale he hasn't even been able to like you know, introduce the sale. So you could, you know, you can speculate, maybe, maybe that resistance is just, is, is just pretty extreme. And, and, and maybe Ryan could win it, but it would certainly be, it would, it would certainly be a, um, a sort of wild, um, uh, outcome if on election night, you know, uh, Warnock wins Georgia, uh, Kelly wins Arizona, uh, Johnson wins Wisconsin. And then you have, uh, you know, Republicans picking up Nevada, holding Pennsylvania, but then like Tim Ryan winning Ohio and it's still 50, 50 and they, you know, and the Democrats still have the majority. So, you know, who knows? I, I, I think the, you know, it has been, uh, it's October has been a rough month for, uh, Democrats. And I think there's, um, You know, we can sort of debate the reasons why that's been the case, but it has been. So, you know, we're going to find out soon enough. Well, and
1: the thing about Tim Ryan that makes me think is just the big thing that was supposed to play against Republican interest this cycle was candidate quality, right? That for a lot of these key Senate seats, they either weren't able to get who they wanted or, you know, Trump picked someone and that person won the primary and that is what they were stuck with. And J.D. Vance is one of those. And per this polling, say, say kind of remove the externalities we know about Ohio, per this polling, maybe that is what that looks like. In a state that's now as red as Ohio, your polls are tied, even though the Republican candidate should win. But the question that I have is like, say these races kind of go the way that we would guess now. You know, Ryan gets perhaps closer than most Democrats have gotten, but then he loses. And you know in in georgia right that's that's your kind of prototypical candidate problem like walker is you know i think maybe 3 points behind warnock in the 538 polling but you know if if he were to win then we just have this case where it's like do candidates really matter anymore or do at least do they matter to the extent that they did because obviously in a, in a Roy Moore situation that matters but that's quite an extreme and we have some people here who by all accounts should not either should not match the electorate in the JD Vance case or just like probably shouldn't be in the public eye at all in the Walker case.
0: Maybe at, at, in, at large. In the right.
1: Public. And then it's almost you've got these like kind of Beto O'Rourke situations, right? Which is like when he came within striking distance of Ted Cruz and ran this like big kind of blockbuster campaign. And then what are you left with? Like, OK, he got closer. I mean, great. But where does that even leave Democrats in these states?
0: Well, I, I think it's really important. We, we have to remember a few things. And, 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 you know, the Pennsylvania race is, I think, a good example of this. That, uh, you know, Fetterman, the stroke politically has been a huge deal. There's no question about that. And what what has kept Fetterman in at least a you know a tiny lead is that Oz is not likable. People don't like him. His you know you just look at the numbers. People like you know do do uh, you know your favorability. He's he's underwater. People don't like him. So that's holding him back. And so I do think if you had a you know just a kind of a generic. Republican guy who wasn't too Trumpy, but Trumpy enough. You know, the sort of what's like, what's the guy in Virginia? Um, oh, the Youngkin? governor? Yeah, Yunkin. You know, someone who whatever Yunkin is in reality, how he managed to present himself um, when he when he ran for, for governor in Virginia. You had someone like that and kind of like, oh, you know, feel so bad for John Fetterman, you know, uh, wish him the best. You know, someone like that might now be just ahead. Um, and uh, I certainly think that a just generic, you know, generic Republican in Ohio. So I, I don't, I think candidate quality still does matter. Obviously much less than it did in in the old days when when things were not so partisanized where you probably have, you know, 45% of the electorate who will literally vote for anybody, you know, who has the who who um who has their party identification. Um but the other part is too is remember, I don't think it's like it's hopeless in these states. You have an upended society, you have high inflation and the Democrats are in charge. You know, that's just that. And and it's a midterm, all the things, there's all sorts of things running against Democrats. And, you know, there's been this, there's been this sort of late push from a number of democratic strategists basically saying, look, you can't not talk about inflation. You have to talk about inflation. And I think they're probably right in the sense that you can't, you you can't not talk about what people are thinking about and what people are seeing. Um, if for nothing else, then because if you don't, people start to think like, "Are you like what planet are you on? How are you not talking about this?" You know, I experience it every day. I go to the supermarket. I go to the I go to the gas line. Um, I think that's right. I think it is right, especially because re- Republicans have no. Policy proposal about it. At least with crime, they will say, you know, no one gets out on bail. We're gonna we're gonna restock the prisons. Now, you may not agree with that. You may not even agree it will actually affect crime. But I mean, it is a policy response, and to a lot of people, that sounds very credible. Very credible. I feel unsafe. Lock them up. But but Republicans don't actually have anything on inflation. Like they don't even pretend to have anything on on, on inflation. Um. So they. You have to talk about it, but but I think you also have to recognize that the idea that, you know, this is bad, you're in charge, and I need to keep you in charge because you're going to fix it the way you didn't fix it when I put you in charge last time. That's that's just a hard sell. But it's just that's so, just so a hard stupid, sell.
1: though. It's just so stupid that we're having these conversations about senators who have basically no power over inflation whatsoever not like really the president does any either or like most anyone the fed kind of but it's just like it, it's a stupid conversation of course republicans don't have a plan their one economic plan they've led us into is like causing a global economic crisis by letting the united states to fall on its debt but just this idea of like well democrats haven't fixed inflation so we're going to pick republicans it's like well that doesn't even make sense not even from an ideological standpoint but just from a logistical who's got any power to deal with this like it's happening world round it's just so stupid
0: yeah i mean well you know the one th- the one thing i think we all always have to remember is that especially in a partisanized era this whole conversation it 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 it's this weird inversion because people like us you and i also probably almost everybody who's listening certainly the people who we kind of intermingle with on twitter although that's more my addiction. You're better better at ignoring it, I think, than I am. Um, You have a campaign discourse that is conducted by people who really know a lot about politics. They may be jerks and they may not know policy, but they know a lot about politics. But what we're actually contesting is 10, 15, maybe 20% of the electorate who doesn't have fixed ideological opinions, is not very familiar with politics, And, you know, so is it stupid? Yeah. Because like, you know, if, 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 if someone, uh, you know, if, if, if people were playing to me about my decisions about, you know, the amount of alloy we should have in the steel we make, I'm sure I'd be pretty dumb too. Because I don't know anything about that and I'm not paying any attention to that. Right. So it is that that is kind of the reality.
1: Which, fine. I don't get to pick the world that I live in. But at the very least, I'm going to keep crusading to like stop the valorization of people who don't pay any attention to politics because that happens all the time. This idea of like normal people are too busy to pay attention. It's like, well, they should, you know, they should. (laughs) And we don't have to pretend like it's better if you don't.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's not that hard. I mean, it's not that it's not like you have to be obsessed with it. Exactly, you, you, can, you can you can keep up, and just you sort of read, eye, re, read you know? up on like who's running and stuff like that. Right. So yeah.
1: So uh, now I want to talk about this tweet that has been like stuck like a little irritant in my brain since I saw it. Um, It's from uh, this guy, Michael Sweeney. I don't really, I don't know who he is, but he works in movies and TV, but kind of not the most important thing. But what he tweeted was, given what will happen in the next two to four years, I think we'll look back on the moment where Democrats had some majorities in Congress and be absolutely baffled they didn't do more to prevent fascism from taking power from them when they had the chance. Okay. And the thing about that is, I really understand that that is a good tweet that that is a uh, compelling tweet um, especially now that Democrats are feeling kind of increasingly nervous about the midterms this idea of we had the chance and we blew it but you know logistically what were Democrats supposed to do and you know I'm not trying to be here like team. Democrats are great. And I think there's a long history where Democrats were either kind of feckless or naive in a way that did let them get kind of played by Republicans or by uh, red state members of their own party. And you don't have to go very far back to see that. But this was a situation where like coming in. It's the Biden administration particularly kind of knew the score, you know, and everyone going in knew that Manchin was going to be a problem. We didn't know that Cinema would the extent to which she would become a problem, but we thought Manchin would be difficult. I think we thought he was going to need buttering up some bribes, you know, a lot of jokes about making West Virginia the nicest state in the country, all that kind of stuff. But my God, like they tried to cater to his every whim and it's still kind of a miracle that they pulled off the legislation that they did and nothing at any point ever compelled him to be interested in reforming the filibuster. So, I mean, what? what would you have had them do? I think it's this idea where it's a lot more comfortable to think of Democrats as being kind of spineless weasels who who miss their opportunities because they weren't brave enough and they're too centrist and too, you know, I don't know, behold into corporate interests or insert your thing here than to contend with the idea that Democrats won only this very slim majority after the country witnessed firsthand this physical, visceral, enormous threat to our democracy. And this is, the best they could eke out from that position. I think that's a lot of a less comfortable understanding than this belief that Democrats are just somehow inherently weak. And that's why they can't beat back the threat from the Republican Party.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, to me, I see that there is a certain posture that people have that, uh, you know, there's some times in life where you just say, I could have done that thing. I should have focused on it. I didn't. And now I regret it so, so much. And there is a certain posture that is that is very common on social media although not just on social media of a kind of self-validating catastrophism of sort of like yeah we're going to look back and like uh, why didn't we 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 it should have occurred to us that that we should have prevented fascism but we didn't prevent fascism and now we have fascism ah uh, don't what was i mean it, it is, again, there's this, there's this hard to capture sort of moral posture and aesthetic of, of, of that thing. And I'll read, read word for word. Given what will happen in the next two to four years, I think we'll look back on the moment when Dems had slim majorities in Congress and be absolutely baffled they didn't do more to prevent fascism from taking power when they had the chance. Well, stated as that, like, wow, why didn't we, why didn't we? Well, if you were actually paying attention, I I, I think we know the the Democrats in effect had 48 votes in the Senate. So they literally could not pass anything that could not pass the budgetary muster of the reconciliation process. Now, should you overrule the Senate parliamentarian? Absolutely. But you had two senators who were wedded to this idea of procedure and propriety, and they were not willing to do that. So we actually know exactly why they didn't do more. They did not have the votes to do more. Now, you can kind of draw back and maybe you can say, well, you shouldn't have people who suck like like Joe Manchin. I'm like OK, sure. I mean, and yet that was the actual Congress that was put together. Um The other thing, I think a a whole other layer of this, and this kind of goes in another direction. You were not, you were actually not going to be able to pass laws that are sufficient to in themselves arrest the right leaning proto fascist elements within this country at the end of the day you are going to have to win elections. And maybe that means you have to win elections under unfair election practices. But, you know, people talk about well this I don't I don't even remember now if we did this that I think it I guess it did pass. I can't even remember now. You know, the fix to make up for the idea that um you know, the vice president can pick the next president if they think if they think so. Sure, you you can you can pass a law saying that. But the law was already clear. And so that was just something, someone, some ridiculous idea someone came up with, and people on the Trump side decided it made sense. So when the other side is already just willing to kind of break the law and make stuff up, your statute law is not going to stop that. It might, it might make it a little harder to do the thing they came up with last time. But again, it, and this, is, this, this goes back to the um, the literalism and civic focus of most liberals. You need a law pass a law. Well, if you're not following the law, if you're making up laws, that's not going to cut it you will you will need to do this fundamentally um, at the ballot box and the final thing I'll say about this it's it, it's really self-womping. It is this, again, self-validating, uh, self-pleasuring mode where y- you basically demoralize your own side for the purpose of being the sort of the smart guy over in the corner who saw it all coming. and But again, it... Because yeah, you really will get demoralized, if you're like, "Wow, we, we could have, we, we had two years to stop fascism and and, and we didn't why, why, why not?" But that's not what think, happened.:
1: I think people also this notion, and I don't mean to pick on this guy in in particular,' it's just that this tweet, I think represents a whole kind of genre of angst on the left is that it's often juxtaposed with this idea that like Democrats just don't wield power like Republicans. They're too weak to really use power. And I find that idea to be so frustrating because, again, I understand it's really compelling, you know, and people on the left are still bearing the scars of like Merrick Garland and these exercises of Republican power that I think most kind of civic-minded people, it wouldn't have occurred to them. And then you see it being done on the right and you're like, well, our party's freaking weenies. You know, we would never do something like that. And I I get that. But this idea that Republicans are just so much more effective than Democrats because they're so much better at marshalling their forces is like an evidence-free hypothesis because we saw how we have a direct correlation of how Republicans acted when they had two years of unified control. And all they managed to do is pass the Trump tax cuts. So this idea of it's just Democrats who suck and who have weak leadership. It's just the reality is governing on the federal level with all the built in you know, veto points that we have is incredibly difficult. And it's harder for Democrats who want to pass a actual wide swath of legislation and whose members tend to be more coalitional and from different you know viewpoints and priorities than Republicans who are both more homogenous and who have proven that they will still keep getting elected even if all they do when they're in power is you know, block Democratic stuff or, you know, if we see them flip the house, they'll, like pass a bunch of bills banning CRT in preschools or whatever. Like that is also, that's not an effective use of power.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I you know, I do partly agree with that um, critique about the about the use of power and how Democrats use it. What gets me so um, upset about that? Upset is the wrong way to put it. Uh, what makes me so critical about that tweet is again, you, you can't use power you literally don't have. Right. But I think you get at the, the issue there, which is that Democrats have a coalitional party and one that has a lot of investment in sort of civic norms so it's harder for democrats and i still think democrats should get better at that um but it but it is harder you know one of the things um i was looking at some political science stuff and j- just basic things there are ways that democrats could energize various components of their coalition much more than they do hmm. but but the reason they don't is because the things that would really juice certain members of the of their coalition would deeply alienate other members of their coalition. And this is something we've talked about on the podcast, on the site for years and years and years. It is that kind of coalitional instability makes you makes it a lot harder for you to do things like, oh, I'm just going to run the country into into default. You know, to do dramatic things. And the um that is the homogeneity of the gop not that it's 100 percent homogenous but the the modern republican party has one dominant overwhelming constituency white conservative christians there are other people in it but they live in the white conservative christian house right so they can just they can they They have more ability to do that. So, you know, that's that is the you can't you can't get better at these things if you don't understand the realities that uh, made you not great at them in the first place.
1: And the thing that's frustrating is the corrective to that, to the fact that it's harder for Democrats to govern because their constituents are more varied. You know, the thing that's supposed to be the corrective to that is that there are more of them. There are more Democrats. There are fewer Republicans. They might be, it's easier to marshal Republicans. It's easier to kind of come up with a platform that appeals to basically all of them, but there are fewer. So Democrats should have that kind of corrective uh, advantage, that mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. unwieldy, it's a big tent, but it's big. That's the point. But that just doesn't work when you have all of these either kind of institutional or politically devised tricks to ensure that Republicans never have to broaden their appeal, that they can only remain a, a attractive prospect to a minority of voters. And yet, have a 50-50 shot at winning the presidency every time, have a 50-50 shot at the House of Congress, maybe even, you know, advantages because of the way that Congress is structured. And on the state level, I mean, forget about it. We're talking about super majorities in essentially 50-50 states. So you just can't, I don't think you can write that part out of the story just because you're so eager to kind of flagellate the fact that Democrats weren't able to, in these two years, prevent the onslaught that's coming from, you know, 40% of the country.
0: Yeah, totally. Totally, totally, totally. Okay,
1: so um, this is, we're going to end with this question from Daniel, who says, a uh, question I have is, what is the explanation for formerly swing states like Florida and, and Ohio, and to a lesser extent, North Carolina, and perhaps a couple others, moving reliably red in national elections? And I think the reason why I liked this question is, Florida and Ohio in particular, you know, undeniably moving to the right, but I think for different reasons, that makes them each kind of an interesting case study, you know, because Florida in particular, it's hard, it's almost easy to forget now that DeSantis only beat Andrew Gillum by like a squeaker margin. Yep. I mean, there was a recount on everything. Yep. Um, and now it's like, you know, DeSantis is king of the hill, right? He's, he's calling the shots. He's a right wing media darling, the kind of will he, won't he 2024 versus Trump, you know, all that stuff. And I think a huge part of the Florida story has just got to be lot of people coming to the state and a lot of those people pulling it to the right. And then you also have the idea that I think the older generation of kind of reliable Democratic voters has been steadily dying off and being replaced with the older baby boomers who tend to be more conservative than that kind of, I guess, New Deal coalition type group. Right. Um, And then I think you also in the, this big similarity in both of these things is that their state legislatures are hopelessly gerrymandered, completely out of reach of dem- for Democrats.
0: Yeah, I I, I think I, there's a few ways we can answer this question. One is that there are certain states that are trending right and other st- states that are trending left, you know, Arizona and Georgia, you know, they were uh, Biden won, you know, Senate and president won them uh, two years ago. There's at least a decent chance that that uh, Democrats will win them again. So, you know, different states going in different directions. You know, Colorado is another example of that. It was a pretty Republican state um, until until quite recently. And to Kate's point, I think though I think the state that is just no surprise is Ohio. It we know that there are a lot of democratic weaknesses in the industrial Midwest. Uh, we see that in you know we 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 saw that in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan in 2016. We saw that those were close again. So there's there's demographic reasons in those states that that have made them more a vulnerability. All of them, Ohio. You have the combination that a big chunk of it is basically part of the South culturally part of the South and and part of, in, in another area, part of like West Virginia. So it is a more, um, you know, it has more of what has made the industrial Midwest more challenging for Democrats. You know, North Carolina, I'm not sure you can actually say it has gotten more conservative. You know, it was like a huge, amazing thing when, when Barack Obama won it, right? Um, so that i'm not i'm not totally sure that that um you can really make a strong argument that it's that it has moved that much it's always been really tough for democrats um and then in florida i think to kate's point um it's certainly not even even with all those things it's more that it's just kind of notched out of the point where you can say it's a swing state anymore but much less than with Ohio. Ohio is like I don't you know, no one's no one's thinking that like oh if we just get the right candidate we're gonna right.
1: we're gonna you know. Yeah, take the, the what I wanted to say about Ohio is that in a lot of these uh kind of rust belty places, right, the dynamics are similar in that the cities are becoming bluer, the rural parts are becoming redder, and then you know, it just kind of ripples out from there. The, the suburbs that are kind of right around the cities are also blue and everything. But in Ohio, you've got a situation where, first of all, just less of the population lives in their cities than do in these like comparable Rust Belt places. You know, you think of somewhere like Pennsylvania, how many people live in Philadelphia? I mean, that's a huge chunk of and, it. And, and, and Pittsburgh. Exactly. And in, in Ohio, you know, in, in Cleveland and Cincinnati, there are just simply less people there. And on top of it, They tend to be less kind of vehemently blue as these other counterpart cities are. So you've got not that same kind of blast of power from the urban centers, which is huge because in other of these states, you just kind of, if you can run up the margins enough in the cities and the surrounding areas, you can kind of counteract the huge drain from the rural areas. But that model is not as effective in Ohio. And then I think like what you were getting at with the more kind of ancestral Ohio problems is that. Ohio is that prototypical old Democrat form, you know, the the kind of old union stuff, the, the blue-collar worker stuff, all of which has trended so red recently. And then the other coalitional strengths that are helping Democrats come up in somewhere like Georgia, where they're, you know, successfully kind of marrying cities, women in suburbs, and minority voters in both. You know, Ohio's a lot wider than some yeah. of these other places yeah. so you also don't have that to kind of make up those discrepancies.
0: I mean another thing that that occurs to me and this this has something to do with my my family background. That um you know Illinois is a very blue state, you know, kind of not even contested in presidential terms, kind of barely contested anymore in 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 senate terms. Southern Illinois, culturally part of the south, definitely. Definitely culturally part of the South. I'm sure it's overwhelmingly Trumper. Um, half my family is from is from Southern Illinois, um, so I know that. But the thing is, there's no big cities in Southern Illinois. There's there's just not that many people who live down in Southern Illinois, Um, and obviously Chicago is one of the biggest uh, cities in the country, and not just Chicago but the whole kind of greater you know Chicago area and stuff like that. So um, it's it's all these things, but again, you know, you have the part uh, Southern Ohio is just is just part of the South. So each one's a different story, but I do think it is you have to remember, yes, why are these states that were swing states becoming red states? And you could add Iowa to that is another perfect example, even though people focus on it less because it's smaller, it's fewer electoral states. But again, Arizona, Colorado, Georgia, you know, there's there's states moving in both directions, which is, you know, which is kind of, um, which is kind of how it always is, or at least always is in um, in this era that we're uh, living in, you know, you go back to, um, uh, I think, you know, both Nixon and Reagan won contests with winning all but one or two jurisdictions. You know, DC being being one. That's just un- you know, it's it's incomprehensible now that you'd have something like that. So, you know, in this in this polarized era, you will you will always slowly have certain states moving in and out of the sort of the you know the transitional space. That's just, that's just political life.
1: And it is so interesting that, you know, that old kind of chestnut of demographics is destiny is true, even if it, I think that phrase has long been kind of attached to this idea that Republican voters are old and that they're going to die off and then Democrats will dominate. And I don't think it's been maybe quite that simple, but this idea that Democrat, that demographics is destiny is True. I mean, in both those examples we just talked about, but working in kind of idiosyncratic ways.
0: Yeah, I think that I think that's what you say is exactly it. That it is destiny. It's just not as obvious how it will function. Right. Right. Exactly. We know why Ohio is different from Georgia. Right. Um, but. It's not kind of like, well, everyone was young and biracial in uh, Georgia and that's how it ended up. It's, you know, it's never it's never quite as simple as, uh, you know, taking the template from one era or one election and just sort of, you know, projecting it out endlessly. Into the future. Yep. All right. All right. Well, uh, I think that is about it. Remember, uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. You can get 25% off your order uh, on Grady's at grady'scoldbrew.com with promo code TPM.
1: Yeah, and you want to remind our listeners real quick right. about our event coming up. We
0: have an event coming up um, where it's going to be, you know, uh, me, a guy named Adam Gentelson, who's a, a former Senate staff, a real kind of sort of the most important filibuster reform activist in 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 the country.
1: we did an inside briefing. Right. We
0: did an inside briefing with, I think, about a year ago. And then um, my uh, close friend, Steve Clemens, who is, you know, the most connected guy in uh, Washington, D.C. He is now part of this new uh, publication, Semaphore, uh, that Ben Smith and Justin Smith put together. So we're going to have an event. And what we're going to talk about, you know, I've been I've been railing about Roe and Reform for like the last three or four months. And I definitely uh still feel like it was a missed opportunity for democrats probably I, pr- you, I probably don't have to tell you that it's coming up just before the election and we the three of us are going to talk through the dynamics of abortion politics in the Senate in the Democratic Party why did that pledge not happen what were the dynamics what about the filibuster we're going to get into all of that stuff and 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 I am full of opinions about that but these two guys kind of know as much as there is to know about these uh not not so much particularly abortion, but how the sort of the political dynamics and the internal Senate dynamics played into this. So that is going to be really interesting. Um, and uh, when we get a little closer to the time, we'll, we'll have, you know, announcements of it on the site. Uh, you know, virtual event, we really want you to come. Uh, I think we suggest that you make a small donation, but it's not uh, it's not mandatory. So definitely keep an eye out for that. It is November 3rd at 6 p.m. Virtual event. Uh, me, uh, Adam Jentleson and Steve Clemens, And it'll be a lot of fun. And I think I'm definitely going to learn a lot and I think you will too. Awesome. All right. Later. All right.
1: See you guys next week. The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter, Kate Riga and TPM founder, editor in chief, Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.